Okay, so uh, you have up on the uh, up on the screen our message for today. If you picked up sermon notes, we had one of our um, one of our gracious congregants come up to me during the uh, the fellowship time with the the handout and say, well, "Jonathan, am I just supposed to guess as to where?" We're going to find these verses, and all of a sudden it hit me. Yeah, I, I didn't put the, the book. So it's Hosea. If you're looking at the references and you're wondering, well, there are 66 I have to choose from, Hosea is where we're going to be. The timing, of course, couldn't be better for this. Let me tell you what the thinking was um, as for this message. Um, we're, we're going through a study of, uh, of Hebrews in the morning service, with our senior pastor being out, he wanted to be able to, uh, to continue on uh, where we had left off in that series. So he uh, basically just asked me to do a uh, quote-unquote standalone message. In adult Sunday school next week, we're going to be starting uh, a study through the book of Hosea. And so I thought uh, maybe one of the things that, uh, that we could do this morning, since I had already been kind of you know, in Hosea thinking in that direction, we'd take maybe just a survey of the first three chapters, which kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book. Um, the added bonus on this, this is what I didn't realize. Um, one, when I agreed to fill the pulpit, I, I didn't put two and two together about the fact that this was going to be the weekend when my wife was not going to be home. So I was you know, already pulling double duty. And then two, I didn't stop to think about the fact that without any children's church that we were going to be doing Hosea while all the young kids were in here. Right, okay, some of you know, that, know what Hosea is about, right? It's uh, an unfaithful wife. It's, it's pretty, pretty just sad and disgusting and stuff like that. So I'm going to do my, my level best, one, uh, to keep it G-rated, which uh, I'm pretty sure it was only PG initially until I remember that the kids were going to be in here. We'll keep it G-rated, and then I will try to make sure that, uh, that we don't drag this out any longer than what we have to, or at least I'll try to try. How about that? Does that give me some wiggle room if I try to try? Okay. All right. So, go ahead and turn to Hosea. Let me open us up with a word of prayer because we need it as we come to this book, as we, um, as we gather together and as we would hear what God would have us hear, and then we'll pick up pretty quickly. Father, we thank you that according to your goodness and your grace, not only have you chosen us through your Son... Not only have you purchased us, but you have also given us all that we need for life and godliness in this present age. And that one of the greatest gifts that you have, uh, have put in our hands is your word, the very words of the Creator God, put down in writing so that any time we can pick it up and we can hear from you. Father, not everything that we read here, of course, is easy. Not easy to hear, not easy to take, certainly not easy when we consider the role or the place that we play in your redemptive story. But we pray that as we go through uh, just an overview of these chapters in Hosea, that you would stir up within us just a, a wonder of your love and your grace uh, that you would cause us to grieve over sin as you grieve over it, and yet to rejoice in your unfailing love that continues to draw us to yourself. 
um, who's uh, a love that never will cast us off. May everything that we do and say now please you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, so the book of Hosea, you have 14 chapters, the first three of which are sort of this, uh, this autobiographical um, storyline that more or less kind of lays the foundation for everything else that happens in the book. Um, if you get the first three chapters down, more or less, you, you can you know, kind of piece together some of the other things that are going on in the book, even in some difficult passages, if you just keep the main point you know, foremost in your mind. So the storyline in Hosea is simply this. God comes to Hosea, who's one of his prophets, and he says, Hosea, I'm sending you to, uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel, and in order for you to really convey the message that my people need to hear, I'm going to have you act out my message as you preach it. And the message, essentially, that Hosea is to preach is one in which Hosea comes and he confronts the people as a wayward spouse. He confronts them over the fact that God, as their creator and king, the one who redeemed them and bought them and brought them to himself, has been more than faithful, has been more than loving, more than kind, more than generous, has been everything that they could ask for, but the people are acting as an adulterous, prostituting, filthy, disgusting, fickle bride. So the imagery that's being used is this husband-wife relationship. God stands in the place of the husband. His people stand in place of the bride, the wife. Hosea then is told at the very outset that his life, his, his experience is going to mirror the experience that God has had with his people. And so here's where we're going to pick up. We've got three basic points in which we're going to look at this scandalous love story contained in the pages of Hosea. So the first one is, the first point, you can see it here on the screen or you've got it in your notes. Number one, the husband in this story marries a serial adulterer. And actually, we need to, we need to make a correction there. That actually, a serial adulterer, that's, not, that, that's probably the, not the best term to be used there. And, and we'll see why in just a minute. More along the line is, uh, is whatever word you want to think of for the word prostitute. Adultery doesn't quite cut it. Adultery is bad... But this is something that goes even beyond the pale of, of adultery. This is just blatant, outright prostitution. The husband in this story marries a woman who in her heart of hearts is no different from your common corner prostitute. Number two, after the husband puts her away, puts his wife away because of her sin, because of her unfaithfulness, because of breaking her vows, as the story proceeds, we find out that the husband actually takes this woman back. He marries her a second time, even though he knows and has already seen, she's already shown what kind of woman she is. He takes her back. 
And then number three, when the husband takes her back, he does so at his own personal cost. He pays to remarry his rightful bride. We'll, we'll get back to this in a minute. Do you, but do you, do you hear the progression in this story? Hopefully as we go through it, we kind of flesh it out and you get sort of the offensive nature of this. So let's start with the first point, that he marries a, a prostitute. He marries a woman who, in her heart of hearts, is no better, is no different than your common streetwalker. Notice what it says in the text. Hosea chapter 1, let's look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And then skip down a little bit further into chapter 2. We get a little bit of an idea as to why the Lord refers to His relationship with His people as a relationship with a flagrant prostitute, a flagrant harlot. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Their mother, the mother of these children of harlotry, has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For, here's part of what makes her so shameful. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. And she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. If you were to continue reading on, going back to chapter 1, verse 2, where the Lord tells Hosea to marry a woman who in her heart has the identical character of a prostitute, he says, and then the other thing that you're going to do to kind of communicate just how bad the breakdown in my relationship with my covenant people, just to, to get that across, how bad this breakdown is, when your children come from this woman, these are the names you're going to give them. So the first one is going to be named Jezreel. And the reason is because that was a site of this horrible bloodshed, and the Lord was saying, because of your sin, bloodshed is now about to come down on the nation as well. I'm about to judge them. The next one, lo ruhamah, which is the Hebrew word for no compassion. The Lord says, I'm done feeling sorry for these people. I'm done being compassionate and merciful and patient. Yes, I'm slow to anger, but at a certain point, there is no more left to give. And that, and that time has come. There is no more compassion for this woman. And the third child was going to be named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And this one is what really ratchets it up because the Lord says, it's not just simply that they are not my people, but I am not their God. In the Hebrew, when the Lord says, I am not their God, the word that He uses is the same word that He used with Moses at the burning bush when He said, from this point on, here is my covenant name with my people. I am that I am. 
That's how you will know me? Here in Hosea, he says, not anymore. I am not your I am any longer. Judgment is coming. I have no compassion for you. You are not my people. I am not your God. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? From a God of love and mercy and kindness. But then that's where we go back to what we read in chapter 2. See, the issue here is not, is not, understand this, is not that there has been a momentary lapse of fidelity, right? As if this bride or the nation wakes up one morning, is under a lot of pressure, faces a lot of temptation, and has one moment of indiscretion, and the Lord says, well, that's it. No more of that. Rather, this is an ongoing pattern that this woman is involved in. So much so that when you go to chapter 2, just notice a couple of the statements or the descriptions that are given. When you go back to two, to chapter 2, verse 5, she's acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lover or lovers. Lovers, plural. I will go after not one man, not two men, I will go after as many men as I can get who give me what I want. And then, as she's going around, moving from house to house, that, right, this is the picture, God likening His relationship to His people with a dysfunctional relationship between a husband and a wife because the wife is out prostituting herself. As she's going from house to house to all these different lovers because they have something to offer her that she wants. In chapter 2, we're told that the Lord actually sets up barriers, prevents her from doing all that she would do. Do you see that? In chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she'll come to her senses, right? Then she will say, well, I guess now I'll go back to my first husband. Why? Because she's seen the light? Because she's heartbroken at the way that she's abused her husband, the way that she's walked out on him, the way that she's offended him and brought shame to him? Is that why the wife is going to go back? No. It's because she can't find her way into another man's bed. And so she says to herself, well, I can't sleep out on the street, so I might as well go back to my husband. He'll let me back in. He'll provide for me. Do you see how cynical that is? He'll take me back. No desire, no intention to change. It's just, I'm just looking for whatever I can get, whatever I want, whatever's going to satisfy me. I'm, I'm going to go there to find it no matter where there is. And if I can't find it in all these places, well, then, yeah, I guess reluctantly I'll, I'll come back to my husband. 
that's pretty bad, right? If you can picture in any normal, well, quote-unquote, normal relationship, if you can picture something like that happening, it's offensive. It's staggering, just the brazen impurity, the brazen harlotry that's involved here. But, but just to tweak it a little bit more, here's the thing. The husband in this story knows what this woman is going to do, and he still marries her. Do you see that? Hosea, the Lord says in 1-2, go marry a woman who is of this kind of character. Go marry a woman. Go take for yourself. Have children. Start a family with a woman who in her character, in her fidelity, in her faithfulness is no different than a prostitute. Go marry that kind of woman. Hosea knows what's going to happen. And he marries her anyway. Here's the big question. If Hosea knows ahead of time that his wife is going to turn out to be this messed up. But he marries her anyway because that's what the Lord has told him to do. Aren't we also then supposed to make the connection that this is something like what happened when the Lord chose His own bride for Himself? Doesn't that imply that when the Lord, when God chose a bride for Himself, that He chose a woman, so to speak, that He knew in her heart of hearts would be unfaithful? Isn't that the point? Hosea, take this kind of a woman because this land, this people, is that kind of people. Let me, let me just show you one place where this shows up just in stark, stark reality and contrast. This is in Deuteronomy. You don't need to turn there. We'll put it up on the screen for you. In Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing the people for the passing of the torch from him to Joshua and the new generation that's going to go in to take the land. And this is what the Lord says through Moses to the people. He says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30. The next chapter, Deuteronomy 31, here is what the Lord says again. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and will play the harlot. Same word that's used in Hosea. Will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them 
and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them. Do you, do you see what's happening in Hosea? Hundreds of years before, the Lord had already set the stage for that. The Lord chose a bride for Himself, chose a people for Himself, bound Himself to them in covenant, and even as He did so and said... Now, here it is. I, I, want you to come. I want you to love me. I want you to remain faithful to me. I want you to walk with me, only me. He turns around and he says, but I know what's going to happen with this woman. She's not going to stay. She has a wayward heart. She has roving eyes. She's never satisfied with what I offer. She's never satisfied with what I give her. She always thinks that the grass is greener on the other side, that someone else out there can give her what only I can give her. And she's going to chase after as many lovers as she can get her hands on. As a matter of fact, as you go through the Old Testament, this language, this, this adultery, prostitution language is used by the prophets multiple times. Jeremiah uses it and actually describes the people as being insatiable in their adultery and in their prostitution. They never get enough. Point number two. We're going to go through the story before we come back and we try to bring it home in terms of relevance. So this is the kind of woman that Hosea is to marry. This is the kind of bride or spouse the Lord has chosen for Himself. Someone who is corrupt in the very core of their being. Someone who will not remain faithful who's always looking for someone else and something else that they, can, that they can get. So much so that the only reason they would ever go back to their husband, the only reason they would ever go back home is if they continue to run into dead ends and they can't find another house to go into. That's the only reason this woman would ever go back home. But then in chapter 2, as we continue on, chapter 2, verse 14. After the Lord describes how unfaithful, how offensive his people have been to him, then we get a passage like this, Hosea 2:14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Baali. And then skip ahead to verses 19 and 20 in chapter 2. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. So as rotten as what this woman is, as bad as what the Lord knows is going to happen... After talking about the fact that he has no compassion for these people anymore, that they're not his people, that he's not their God, then he turns around and says, but you know what? There's coming a time when I'm going to come back and I'm going to romance you again. 
Is there anyone that would think or talk this way? Were they in the Lord's position? Were they in Hosea's position? Your spouse shacks up with anyone that will take them in, doesn't want anything to do with you. The marriage is essentially dissolved and annulled. And then you, the one who's been betrayed, not the offending party, the offended party, says, you know what? I'm going to go win her back. Does the Lord not have any pride or self-respect? Why doesn't He just kick her to the curb and be done with it? Go find someone else. See, here's part of the problem, though. Where is he going to go to find someone better than the first woman that he married? Is he going to go to the Babylonians? Is he going to go to the Assyrians? The Egyptians? Is he going to come to you? Is he going to come to me? We're, we're better than what these people were. We're more pure. We're more faithful. We're a cut above. God help us know. So if the Lord is going to have his bride, what is he going to have to do? He's going to have to go back and win the bride that was already his. He's going to have to take her back after she has been put away. And it's the Lord who takes the initiative. He's the one who brings the romance. He's the one who pursues. He's the one who chases. And he does so on his own initiative. Notice it's not that he says, I'm going to do this when she comes to her senses. When she wakes up and says, oh my gosh, what a fool I've been. What have I done? And when she asks to come back, then we'll begin to put this marriage back together. No, the Lord says, I'm not waiting for that. I'm going to go find her. I am going to bring her back from wherever she is. And then he says in 2, 19 and 20, And when I bring her back, I'm going to marry her all over again. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? Is the Lord insane? Chapter 1 and the early part of chapter 2 says, this is just who this woman is. By nature, she is unfaithful. By nature, she is not content to stay with you. By nature, she wants what she can't have. She is always looking for someone and something else. Why do you think that's going to change? Because you marry her a second time. Isn't she still going to be the same woman? Do you, do you see that question? It's not written in, in ink in the text, but that's the question that hangs over that passage. Why in the world should we expect that this second marriage to the same woman is going to be any different than the first marriage? Hold on, because it gets even more offensive. Chapter 3 comes in, and we're back to Hosea. 
right? We start with Hosea. Hosea, take this kind of a woman because you're going to act out. Your life is going to be a reflection of what I've been living with my people. And then after going through chapters 1 and 2, talking about how unfaithful the people have been, how she's like an unfaithful bride, now we come back to Hosea and we see in chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, there it is, the second time, go a second time, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So what does Hosea do in verse 2? So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I also will be toward you. He marries her a second time, but before he can marry her, he has to buy her back. The husband, the one who has a right to this woman, he's the one who pays the price. The one who has been offended, the one who has been abandoned, he's the one who incurs the cost. What does, what does the woman pay? What does this adulterer, this prostitute, this serially unfaithful woman, what does it cost her? Tell me, what does it cost her? Nothing. The price is taken up by the husband. He covers it. He pays it. And she doesn't pay a dime, even though it's her sin, it's her rebellion, it's her infidelity that has broken the relationship. There are no consequences that come to her. And by the way, it, this also is not in the text, but I think it's something, again, one of those questions that just kind of hangs out there. If he has to buy his wife back, who does he have to pay? Where, where is she? What has she been doing? She's going to any man that she can find, one man to, another, one man to the next. So when he has to go find her and when he's going to bring her back, when he has to pay a price to get her back, his wife, who is he going to pay? He's going to pay the handler. He's going to pay the one that's been taking advantage of his wife. You see how humiliating this is? No husband in his right mind would stoop to this level. And so in these three chapters, then, the Lord says, okay, Hosea, this, this is what your life, this is what your marriage, this is what your family, your home life, this is what it's going to look like so that the people see, even though they probably won't pay attention, so that the people see 
what I've been living with for generation after generation after generation. But then here's the way that this plays out in the rest of Scripture. This analogy, this, this imagery, this illustration of a husband and bride does not begin and end in the Old Testament. It's carried over into the New Testament, right? Husbands, love your wives, Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he could sanctify her and purify her and wash her and present himself a bride that is spotless and without blame. In Romans 9, Paul, Paul takes a, a, a quote from Hosea 1 where God says, you're not my people anymore, I'm not your God. And do you know what he does with that? He says, Gentiles, people who have been outside of Israel, this verse applies to you too. You are not his people. He is not your God. Why? Because you have turned your back on your creator and your king. But then he turns right back around and he says things like, Don't you know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore, your bodies are not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Don't you know, Paul says in Titus, that the Lord gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed so that he could present us as a people, as a bride, as a church, who were zealous for righteousness. Don't you know, Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 1, that you were not bought with corruptible things like silver and gold, but you were bought by the blood of your husband. See, the woman in Hosea's story, his wife or the nation who stands in a marriage relationship to her creator, that, that woman is us. That woman is you, is me. It's not as if God comes and says, you know what, I need to find a people for myself, someone that I'm going to bring, that I can enter into covenant relationship with, that I can enjoy, they will enjoy me, and it will be glorious. And so he looks out over the earth and he says, you know what, these people look really good. These people just seem to be really solid, really committed, really steadfast. So yeah, I'll, I'll take them. No, he looks out on the face of the earth and everywhere he turns and everywhere he looks, he sees nothing but lies and deceit and immorality and impurity and wayward hearts and roving eyes. And he says, I'll take them. So that when you read in Hosea that Hosea has to choose her as a wife and then you're supposed to say, wait, the Lord took those people to be his bride, what you're meant to read in with that also is, wait, the Lord took me? Wait, the Lord 
married Edgewood? Do you know what those people are like? Do you see what they do in their own free time? Do you see what they, what they chase after? Do you see how fickle they are? That's who the Lord chose? But here's the glorious part, people. The problem with the storyline in Hosea is that no matter how often the Lord comes to chase His people, no matter how often or how much He romances His bride to come back, no matter how good and loving and faithful He shows Himself to be to them, they're still going to remain the same kind of person. Right? Go back to chapter 2. We'll, we'll start, to, start to bring this home here. This is what you need to see, though. In, he, in Hosea chapter 2, when it says in verses 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Didn't he do that the first time when he married them? How is any of this going to change? If we are the adulterous woman, how can I ever hope that I'm going to stay where I'm supposed to stay? What's going to, what's going to keep me from being here one minute and gone the next? Hold your place here. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, the Lord says, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Turn over another page in Jeremiah to chapter 32. Pick up with me at verse 38. The Lord says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good. And for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. What's, what's the difference going from Hosea to the New Testament? Is, is the difference in the husband? Is God just a different, better kind of husband than He was in the Old Testament? Now that He's in the New Testament, He's learned, He's picked up some, some new traits. He knows how to keep a woman now. 
No, he's exactly the same. The difference is the difference that's been made in the bride. The word says, I cannot find a bride who will remain faithful. Therefore, I must make her faithful by giving her a completely new heart. Because if I don't, she's going to stray. If the Lord does not give you a new heart, Hosea is you. You'll turn on a dime for anything that catches your attention, everything that catches your glance. The only thing that ensures that our relationship with Christ is going to be permanent and is going to last is the work that God himself has done through Christ. Not just in bringing us to him, but in actually giving us a heart to love him and a mind to know him. Let me just draw this to a close with three points of application. What what does this do? What does Hosea do in terms of this imagery of husband and wife and how it's picked up in the New Testament? Number one, this is not in your notes, not on the screen, so if you want to jot it down, you can. Otherwise, use your photographic memory. Number one, always, 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 Scripture would have us understand that we have been united to Christ not because we deserve it, but simply because He chose us. The only reason we are united to God, to the Father, through Christ, is because He chose to bind Himself to us in covenant relationship. He did not look at you, He did not look at me, He did not look at this church and say, that's the kind of people that are worthy of me. He takes the unlovable, He takes the ugly, He takes the unfaithful, He takes the cheating, He takes the reprobate, and He calls them to Himself. He romances them, and then He says, and now that I have you, I'm going to see to it that for your good and your joy that you enjoy this relationship the way that you should. And he gives you a new heart and a new mind. Number two, because he chose us and because he's given us a new heart to enjoy that relationship, that does not mean that we no longer have to worry about adulterous tendencies. Right? That The certainty of God's work, in other words, and giving us new hearts and new minds does not mean that we no longer have to worry about temptation and sin. Because as you go through Scripture, you find warnings like, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Yes, he's given me a new heart, but there are still habits and ways of life that still fight for ownership of that heart. An old writer who's long dead once said that every sin, every thought, if you let it have its way, would go to the utmost degree. Every glance, he said, would be adultery if you let it. Therefore, you better be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And then number three, we were chosen and given new hearts and new minds. 
even with a new heart and a new mind, we still battle against our old habits and our old tendencies. We, we battle with temptations to be unfaithful, to chase after other things, other people. Number three, though, if God has loved us this much, if we have been forgiven much, surely we should also be forgiving ourselves. The minute you begin to think that someone does not deserve your time or your effort or your energy is the exact moment that you've lost sight of the gospel. Because at no point did you deserve the Lord's attention. At no point did you deserve the Lord's kindness and goodness. We forgive much because we were first forgiven much. At the very bottom of your notes, you have a little quote there from C.S. Lewis, where Lewis says, The church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find but makes her lovely. That's why we sing. That's why we're secure. That's why we don't worry about being cast off. Not because we were lovely so that He was drawn to us, but because He takes us and makes us lovely and will continue to do so. Let's pray. Compassionate and gracious, merciful, abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is the God that you are. You have bound yourself to us, not because we deserve it, but because you bought us by offering up your own son. You found not a woman who is worthy to be loved, but you found a woman that you made beautiful. And Father, we want to be that as the church. Would you help us to stand and to, and to think in fresh ways about how amazing this salvation is, this forgiveness that we have in you? How all the sin, all the offense was ours, and yet all the cost went to you and to your son. Thank you that in buying us back, that your Holy Spirit is constantly at work in us and through us to make us into the person, into the church, into the people that you intend for us to be. Father, I pray that for all of us here, that for this church at Edgewood, that you would give us the humility of a wayward wife and yet give us the confidence of a wife who's been redeemed and bought back of a people who know that they will never be thrown away again. Not because of us, but because of you. You get all the glory, and it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.